Good morning. Uh, I'm Andrew. It was really fun singing with you guys. Um, now we get to uh, read our sermon passage, though. Um, this is the Lord's Word. Uh, so the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent, as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielding the ark of the covenant law, as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain. And he set out the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting, opposite the table of the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain, and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings, as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. And thank you, Andrew, and good morning again, everybody. Uh, I would, I'm really glad that you guys are here worshiping with us. If, if you've been uh, here for a while, you know that we've been working on Exodus uh, since the beginning of the year, and today's the final day. Uh, this is the very end of the story. If you, if you have your Bible and notice, chapter 40 is, is where it all comes down. Now, you might have listened to that reading, and if you're like me, you thought, huh, what, what does that mean, and, and why is this the end of the story? I mean, isn't it true that normally the, the end of a story is the most important part, right? Sort of everything gets brought together, all the, the good guys win, all the bad guys lose, and you know, all the, the plot uh, elements get tied back together in a nice little knot, and you might be, be reading about how Moses set up this tent, and, and basically, God tells him to set it up, and, and God goes camping with the people. And you're thinking, how is that the highlight of this whole story? I mean, this is a story where God 
rescued a people out of slavery in Egypt. This is a story of, with plagues in it and, 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 a, and a Passover lamb sacrificed and going through the Red Sea and having the, the army of Pharaoh like completely covered up with the Red Sea, the, the pillar of cloud and fire and the manna by night. And, and all, I mean, there's many, many things that could have been put at the very last place of the story. But you know, God chooses to talk about his tent set up in the middle of his people. Why in the world would he do that? In fact, if you read the book of Exodus, one chapter a day, it'd take you 40 days. 13 of those days would be just reading passages like we read. 13 whole chapters, y'all, are describing the tent and all of its pieces and parts and how to put it together. In fact, the last 16 weeks of your journey through Exodus, that's where you would find all 13 chapters. So 13 out of 16 weeks at the end of the book, you'd be reading about nothing but a tent. Why is that? I think it's the, at one of the most important things you and I could walk away from this series knowing. The reason why the highlight of the story is God setting up a tent <clears throat> is because God had rescued his people precisely for the purpose of dwelling right in the middle of the camp, of being with them face to face, his presence with his people. That's the whole reason for their rescue. It's the same thing true today. Uh, we're celebrating Palm Sunday. Jesus rode into Jerusalem to die on the cross and rise from the dead. We believe that means God is performing something even bigger than the Exodus all throughout the world today as he's calling his people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue into his kingdom. Well, guess what? The same is true for us. Until we are back in the presence of God, we are not restored. Until we're in the tent with God, we are not restored. But when we get in the tent with God, when God's tent comes to dwell right in the middle of his people, then there is no way we cannot be fully healed. There's no way we cannot be fully, fully restored. That's how important God's presence is for us. Now, I realize you may be here today and you say, okay, well, what is God's presence? I don't even know what that is, first of all. Maybe you say, I know what that is, but why is it that important? Isn't that something that just really religious, fanatical people think about? Well, I want you to just think about this. Have you ever in your life had a situation where you felt excluded or left out? Has anybody ever felt that way? I mean, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but I know every single hand would be up. Have you thought about why those experiences are so powerful and unforgettable? Uh, when I was in, for example, in middle school, uh, I just started playing basketball. I loved basketball, but I just had started playing like in a, in a competitive way. And one day we were out at PE and the dreaded time happened at PE when they started picking teams. You know, didn't you hate that? Because there was always that anxiety. Am I going to be picked? Being picked last is almost worse than being, not being picked at all. Well, this particular day, I did not get picked. Uh, and I was standing, standing on, the, on the sideline of the court uh, talking to a friend, and I, and I was just complaining. Man, I can't believe they didn't pick me. They should have put me in. I could have done this, this, and this. Good. And, and my friend just turned around. Well, he was my friend up to this point. <laughs> He turned around and he said, Stan, you didn't get picked because you're not good enough. And you just need to get it through your thick head that you're not that good. That's what he said to me. And except for he said it in some language I can't repeat in church. <laughs> I have never, I'm not telling you that because so, I want you to feel sorry for me, okay? I got over that. You know, middle school is way behind me. My basketball career even got a little bit better. Not much, but a little bit better after that day. But I'm telling you that because I thought this week, it's amazing that I can remember the look on his face. I can remember every word that he said and how it sounded. I remember exactly how I felt right there. The feeling that hit me at the pit of my stomach when he said that. 
I can remember how it ruined the rest of my day. And probably everybody in the room has something like that. Now, let me say this. If you're here today and you say, I don't know about the presence of God. I don't even know why it's important. Could it be possible that our obsession with belonging, that our obsession with being included and not excluded, being brought in and not left out, could it be possible that actually we're looking for something more than just human approval in that? Could it be that you and I were wired to have a tent set up right next to the tent of the living God, where he would dwell right in the middle of our lives, loving us and caring for us and and sharing his life with us? Is that possible? I just want you to open your mind and think about that today. If you look at your worship bulletin, uh, there are three aspects or or, or things about God's presence that I want to talk through with you. And uh, unlike most weeks, I'm not going to cover every, you know, every detail of the passage that we read. Uh, as I just said, there are 13 whole chapters about this in Exodus. So we're going to be kind of summarizing. Also, th- this theme of God's presence with his people is, is really the theme of the entire Bible. So in some ways, we're going to even be looking at the entire Bible story. But, but here are three things today about God's presence that you need to know. Uh, first of all, you need to know it's essential. You cannot live without it. Second of all, the presence of God is guarded <laughs> It's not something that you can just sort of willy-nilly walk up into. It's guarded. And, and finally, it's something that is granted. It's something that's given by grace. It's essential, it's guarded, and it's granted. God's tent teaches us all three of these things. Uh, first of all, the presence of God is essential. Uh, if you'll look there in uh, chapter 40, verse 17 again, it says the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. Uh, this had been the the culmination of a plan that God had had way before when God first called Moses up onto the the top of Mount Sinai. It was there that he began to give him over several chapters the plans for this tabernacle. But finally, you know, on the first day of the first month, which is exactly one year after the day that they, they learned about the Passover lamb, And they were preparing to leave slavery in Egypt. God says, okay, now's the day. I want you to set up the tent. And at the end of it all, as you see there in in, uh, verse 34 and following, the glory of God, the visible cloud of God's glory comes and settles right on the top of the tent, which happens to be right in the middle of, of, of of the whole camp of the Israelites. Say, okay, how does that tell us that God's presence is essential to our lives? Well, it's very clear here. It's not just talking about God's presence in general. It's talking about God's, we might call it his special presence, which the Bible talks about all the time. You see, you know, you might be thinking, and you're right, the Bible says God is present everywhere. I mean, everybody has God's presence, right? God's presence was not only there when they set up the tent. God was always there with his people. The the big word for it is omnipresence. There is no place in all the world where God is not. I mean, Psalm 139 tells us about this, uh, where the writer asks the question, can I go anywhere to get away from your presence, God? And he says, no, I can go high, I can go low, I can go east, I can go west. I can go all over this whole world, and nowhere is a place where I can escape from your presence. Everybody benefits from that general presence of God, everybody knows the fruit of God's work in the world and his generosity. This tent, though, is about God's absolutely special presence. This is about when God moves into the neighborhood, literally, and opens up a face-to-face, personal, companion-like relationship with his people. Psalm 16 tells us about this kind of presence, where the writer says, God, you've, you have shown me the path of life. 
in your presence is life everlasting, and at your right hand is fullness of joy. You see, this kind of presence is being at God's right hand, being God's friend face-to-face with him. It's very different than the general presence. Everybody experiences that. This is something that is special. This is something that in order to experience it, you have to experience it in the way that God is granting it. A great example of this would be if you went to a concert of a famous musician or band and you go into the arena and there are maybe 24, 25,000 other people, all of them at the same time experiencing the presence of that particular artist or that particular band. The, the, the band is there. Everybody in the room is equally enjoying, or at least they have the opportunity to enjoy, the fruit of that band's work, right? But imagine if you not only went to the concert, but you had VIP passes and you got invited by that artist backstage, and for an hour after the concert, you got to have FaceTime. Sitting across from your favorite musician, asking them questions, learning about their life. What made you a musician? How did you get good? You know, what are the things that excite you most about life and about music? Imagine that. That's the difference in the Bible between general presence of God, omnipresence, and this I'm coming to live in a tent right next to your tent kind of presence. God is inviting Israel to come and know him in the green room, if you will, to come and know him face to face. You ask me questions and I'll give you answers. I'll ask you questions and you give me answers. This is one of the reasons why when God told Moses to set up the tent, the tent was right in the middle of the camp. It was in the middle of all their tents. They they had set up camp tribe by tribe in this big circle. And right in the middle of the circle was God's tent. One writer says his house was just like theirs. It had a yard, it had rooms, and it had even a fireplace. I mean, and everybody would would understand the, the lesson being drawn here. Wait a minute, God is coming to be with us. God is coming to be in some ways like us. He's coming to be my neighbor. But at the same time, at, in the ancient world at this time, when armies or nations would travel around like this, guess who it was that got the middle spot in the middle of the camp? It was always the king of the nation, the king of the army. And so God was not only saying, I'm close to you, I'm near to you, but I'm close to you as a king. I'm close to you as someone who has great power and authority. I'm providing for you. I'm, I'm planning out the, the future for you. I'm protecting you. I'm leading you on to the next steps. In other words, what God is revealing here is he wants to be our companion king. There is a way not just to talk about God vaguely, which so many people do, and think about God as this sort of undefined power source out there that we tap into and get blessings, but there's actually a way to know God as a man knows his friend. This is the way Moses is described, remember, earlier in Exodus. He talked to God as a man talked to his friend face to face in the tent. Now again, here, I want want you to see, this is something, even if you've never thought of it before, I think it's something actually that you are deep down inside looking for. You're really looking for this in your life. You say, how do you figure I'm not one of those overexcited religious people? You know, I'm not a holy roller, so I don't really need all that kind of deep personal stuff. I mean, I, I can just hang with the omnipresence of God. You know, as long as I'm enjoying the fruit of his generosity, I'm good. I don't think so. I think, actually, if you listen to your own heart, and if you listen to the way even you speak, and the way the people around you speak, there's something inside of you that's calling out for this kind of of intimacy and belonging with someone far greater than you are. Think about this. How often do you say or think or hear the word enough day to day? 
that's not enough. That is enough. Oh, I just got to get enough. I mean, this is the way one writer says it. He says, listen carefully, and you'll hear the word enough everywhere, everywhere in our world. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough, that if we got enough, then we would finally be enough. (laughs) And the writer goes on to say, wait a minute, this is the reason why, he's talking about American society, the reason why today we're the least religious we've ever been in our history, in terms of fewer people go to church every week than used to. But at the same time, he says, we are more religious than we've ever been in our history, meaning people actually never leave church. Because their entire lives, everything they do, think, and say, every opportunity, whether in family or in business or in neighborhood, becomes a little way for me to find what I can only find in FaceTime with my Creator. But because I don't have FaceTime with my Creator, then I've got to find success in this one particular thing or this one particular experience. I've used it before, but the movie Chariots of Fire has a powerful scene related to this. Uh, One of the Olympic runners in the movie is asked sort of why he does what he does. Why do you run in Olympic races? And he says, because when I'm on the track, I raise my eyes and I look down the corridor. It's four feet wide and I know that I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? And that's what I'm talking about this morning. Where do you feel like you have your 10 lonely seconds or however long it is to justify your existence? Is the question of the justification of your existence, does it have a question mark on it this morning? (laughs) Is it something that you're not sure whether it's going to actually be answered? Am I enough? Will I get enough? Will I be enough? Will my life really have meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction? The reason why God wanted Moses to set up this tent is to show loud and clear, y'all, there is a place. There is a way. It's not through created things like we think it is. But there is a place and there is a way to get enough. And that's to know not just the blessings of God raining down and showering from heaven, impersonal. He way over there, me down here, getting good things from him every now and then. Maybe him swooping down to to rescue me in very particular difficult situations. But actually, shoulder to shoulder, side to side, face to face, companionship with my maker and with my king. And so, if you'll, I've got a little chart for you this morning to show you what the tent of meeting looked like. I figured it'd be easier for you to see this than for me to just simply describe it. This is from, by the way, the ESV Study Bible, which is an excellent study Bible if you're looking for one. This is the way it looked once Moses set it up. If you'll look at that, that middle tent, that's the actual tabernacle itself. The rest of it is the courtyard. And inside, there were all of these little symbols and reminders of the Garden of Eden that God was giving. For example, you can't really see it because it's kind of small, but all around the inside of the, of the tabernacle, there are uh, cherubim or angels embroidered into the fabric. And remember, of course, in Genesis 1 through 3, the Bible describes that in the Garden of Eden, there were cherubim. There were angels there to attend and to guard when Adam and Eve were there. Also, God's word, the Ten Commandments, are placed in the Ark of the Covenant, which is all the way in the Holy of Holies at the very back of that tent, all the way on your left side. And that was to show, just like in the Garden of Eden, when God said it, 
It was so, and it was good. Let there be light, and there was light, and it was very good. And so here in this tabernacle, finally, God's word is enthroned again. Everything is the way it's supposed to be. The, the lampstand on the south side or the, you know, our side of the tabernacle was supposed to be made like a tree bearing fruit. And when it was lit, it was a reminder not just of the burning bush that Moses had seen, but it was a reminder of the tree of life right in the middle of the Garden of Eden that people could, could go to and take and eat and know that God was with them, giving them life every day by his presence. Uh, everything inside was plated with gold was decorated with onyx stone. And if you go to Genesis 2, you'll see that the two things that were abundant in Eden were gold and onyx stone. Y'all, we don't need to go into all the details here, but only to say this. God is telling us, look, you're looking for, you're looking for enough everywhere, and you're driving yourself crazy trying to find it. All you got to do is come back into my presence the way it was at the beginning, and there you will find all you ever wanted and all you ever needed. You cannot be restored unless you come back here. God does not send salvation like a, like a letter in the mail. No, salvation comes in the form of God himself moving into your life, taking up residence among us. And so here, here's the question this morning that we got to ask here in this first point. If your life is a camp, who or what lives in the tent in the middle? Is it your creator and king with whom you have face-to-face relationship? If your family is a camp, who's in the tent in the middle? If, if Mulberry were a camp, what, what or who would be in the tent in the middle? If America were a camp, I mean, you, you see what I'm saying. You can think about like where you are right now in relationship to the presence of God by, by asking yourself, where do I seek enough from? Where am I trying to justify my existence? The presence of God is absolutely essential to our lives. But secondly, I want you to see the tent also shows us that the presence of God is very tightly guarded. Very tightly guarded. In other words, even though God is saying, you need my presence, he's also saying, but you can't just waltz up in here however you want to. Uh, In fact, if you look at the the diagram of the tent again, uh, you can see curtains are like in abundance, right? Have you ever seen so many curtains? <laughs> uh, and the curtains are all around the thing. The curtains are, are separating the courtyard from the holy place and the holy place from the most holy place. They were thick curtains. They were seven and a half foot tall. And in one case, they're actually 15 foot tall in the tabernacle. I mean, these are giant curtains. And they were meant to be something like the, the do not enter signs that you see everywhere. You know, here in Florida, we have them you might go by a lake and you see a do not swim alligators present. And sometimes they even have a picture of a really mean looking alligator kind of curled up ready to snap at you on the picture. And, it, and it's both a, a warning, hey, this is hazardous, you can't come in here. And it's also a mercy, hey, I want to protect you. I don't want you to get hurt. Don't just waltz up into this lake acting like you own the place. Same thing you see in like a uh, a power plant. It might say high voltage. Do not enter. Same thing. It, it, it's both a mercy and it's a warning. And for God to place these these curtains, which by the way, the ones inside had menacing cherubim angels, like embroidered on the whole length, a fifteen foot tall angel. Just like in Genesis three, when Adam and Eve had sinned, remember they were kicked out of God's presence, and God put a cherubim angel with a burning sword there to guard the way back into the tree of life. What's God communicating? Hey, you need to be in my presence, but you know what? There's a problem here. Your sin and your rebellion have separated you from my presence. 
And so there in, in verse 34, in the passage, whenever Moses sets up the tent like God told him to, and the cloud comes down and covers it, it says in verse 35 that Moses could not even enter the tent because the glory of God was there. In other words, as far as we know, after Moses set up the tent, he even was never able to come back in. He was even barred. Even Moses. This is the clear communication from God, isn't it? You have to be careful when it comes to thinking about my presence. You cannot take it for granted. You can't think that somehow you're automatically qualified. See, sometimes I think we believe that. We, we, we know about God's general presence. We know his general love for everybody and his general giving of his gifts to us every day. And then somehow we think the same thing that applies here applies with his special presence. Everybody gets it. There are no boundaries. There are no borders. But y'all, I want to tell you this morning, you don't even think about your own house that way. <laughs> right? You don't even think about your own house that way. Part of what, what the tent is meant to illustrate is God's holiness. That's a big theme of Exodus and of the whole Bible. God is holy, 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 meaning he's absolutely separate from everything else. He's different. And because he's different, there are boundaries with him. Like there are, are certain ways you should approach him. And then there are other ways that you definitely should not approach him if you don't want to be in danger. And I want to tell y'all, when you talk about my house or when someone talks about their house, they're also talking in language of holiness, right? This house, unlike all the other houses, is my house. Therefore, there are boundaries and I get to set them. I mean, who in here just lets anyone come into any room of your house anytime without announcement? Not a single one of us, right? Even the most hospitable among us, and you should be hospitable, would not let people come up into your bedroom without announcement. You wouldn't want people to take a shower in your shower who you didn't know, right? That's, that's boundaries related to the holiness of a place. This is my place, not yours. I, I'm bound to share my stuff with you, but I share my stuff with you on my terms because this is my place. And so with God. And so, here, here's the critical thing that Israel was learning and that we need to learn in order to really come to know God. In order to experience face-to-face -face presence of God, you have to be convinced of His holiness first. You have to understand that it's not something you can earn, and it's not something you deserve, and it's not something you can just claim without basis. Uh, in, in the 1980s, there was a guy named Michael Fagan who was arrested by London police because he, he snuck into Buckingham Palace at night, not just one time, but 12 times. And they caught him one time, right? And he didn't do it after that. But they, they found out he had done it 12 other times that same year in the middle of the night. And one time, incredibly, uh, did anybody remember this from the 80s? Incredibly, he made it all the way to the queen's bedroom. And he had a 10-minute conversation with the queen while she was in her pajamas. Can you believe that? And that, that's one of the ways that they found out that he came in is, I guess, they talked to the queen. And she said, yeah, the nice new fella, right? <laughs> came in and spoke to me. And come to realize he, he was an intruder who was telling everybody that Queen Elizabeth was his girlfriend. And so he felt like he could just walk up into her house, come and sit with her, have his conversation right on the bedside in the pajamas. You know, just, you know, things boyfriends and girlfriends do, Right? Of course, wrong, right? <laughs> Why? The man was delusional, right? The man did not have a clear sense of reality when it comes to the queen. 
The, the man did not understand boundaries. The man did not understand who he was in relationship to her. The man did not understand the right way to go in if he could possibly potentially go in and get FaceTime with the queen. I want to say to y'all, this is very sobering, but Jesus says at the end of days, there will be many people who are like Michael Fagan with God. They will come before the Lord and they will say, I knew you, God, right? We were buddies. And really all they're saying is, God, I knew your general presence in the world and I got a bunch of gifts from you and sometimes I felt goosebumps when I thought about you. And God, according to Jesus, is going to say, I'm sorry, but I didn't know who you were. And what he means is not, I literally didn't know that you existed. What he means is, I didn't have face-to-face time with you. (laughs) I was not your companion king in the tent at the middle of your life dwelling among you. And guys, in order to go from one to the other, this, this passage is teaching us there's one thing we have to do. We have to learn how to have the trauma of God's holiness humble us is the way one writer says it. At some time in your life, the trauma of holiness has to humble you. In other words, have you ever, like literally or at least in your heart, fallen on your face before God to say, God, you are big and I am small. God, you are holy and I am not. God, I used to have a place in your presence. We used to have a place. We have forfeited that place. Y'all, I would tell you, if you haven't done that, I mean, I would recommend literally getting on your face. (laughs) But if, if, if you won't do that, if you can't do that, at least in your heart, humble yourself down on your face. God, your majesty is something that I can't just sneak in behind like Michael Fagan into Buckingham Palace. You have higher standards, like the the tabernacle shows. You've got seven and a half foot walls, 15 foot walls, and, and we have to come into your presence the way that you have planned for us too. And that's the third thing today. God's presence is not only guarded, it's wonderfully granted. Wonderfully granted. You see, uh, the, we can look again at the at the tabernacle, everything about this was not only showing that it was guarded, it was also showing that God did in fact have a way to let people in. He did in fact have a way. It was just his way and not the ways that we want to invent. And so God appointed priests. You see them in the white inside the courtyard who would offer sacrifices to God and then wash their, themselves. And then they, for the people on their behalf, would go into the holy place and offer up prayers. Once a year, the high priest would do this, and he would get to go only one time a year into the most inner place where the Ark of the Covenant was. He would get to go and take the blood of the sacrifice and and sprinkle it for the people on the Ark of the Covenant and atone, it says, for the sins that the people had committed in that previous year. You see, God made a way. And so if, if you're an Israelite, like the random Israelite pictured there at the front of the tabernacle, you could, in fact, go and, and meet with God face to face. Only thing is, you would have to go into the courtyard and stop there. And then the very important persons, the VIPs, through the sacrifice, would grant you entrance. They would grant your prayers hearing before the Lord. Now, I don't know if, you've, if you can imagine, like, so going back to Michael Fagan, how would he legitimately have a meeting with the queen face to face? Well, he would have to Know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who can connect him in high places with the queen and get him in. Now, he probably didn't have that. And very few of us have that with any dignitary or president or queen or king in the whole world. God is saying every one of the Israelites had that with him. Because of their sin, they couldn't just waltz up in. But because of God's mercy, 
he appointed some people in very high places who were set apart and holy to God, who would walk them into the tabernacle. Now, this went on for thousands of years. Uh, Eventually, the tabernacle that you see here became the temple. When when they moved into the land, they built one out of stone that didn't have to set up and take down and set up and take down. They they got their their own permanent place on top of a mountain in Jerusalem. But over and over again, the people would come year after year, and, and they would gather in the courtyard, and they would worship, and the priest would go for them right into the very glory cloud of God and know God face to face. And yet, all throughout the history, the people who really knew God well, they always knew, man, there's got to be something more than this. Man, it, it's, really, it's really terrible that we have to stop in the courtyard. Man, it, I hate that we have to offer a sacrifice every single time. Man, I just long for something more intimate, for something more personal with God. In fact, in our, in our call to worship today, in Psalm 84, it was written by one of these priests, one of these VIPs, named, you know, one of the sons of Korah. So basically, he worked and lived in the temple, in the tabernacle. And yet he says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. You see what he's saying? Here's a man who lives in the courts of the Lord, and yet he's saying, but yet I yearn for the courts of the Lord. There is something better. There, there is some better face-to-face arrangement that one day God is going to bring. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that's the meaning behind Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. When he rode into Jerusalem, guess where he went first? Y'all can probably say it out loud. Where did he go first? The temple. And he went to the temple and in the courtyard, and there was an outer courtyard beyond that. They had set up the, the buying and the selling. They were ripping people off. They were making a ruckus so that no one could pray. And Jesus made a whip of cords, and he began to drive them out and cleanse God's house. Because it said, zeal for God's house had consumed Jesus. It was the thing that he was most passionate about. And then, catch this, when they asked him, Jesus, what gives you the right to walk up into the house and start cleaning things? You're not even a priest. And Jesus says, here's my right. Destroy this temple, and I'll prove it to you by raising it back up again in three days. And everybody was like, huh? This temple took 40 years to build. What are you talking about? Even the disciples were kind of like, what's he talking about? And then it says, after Easter Sunday, they realized it. He was talking about the real temple, his body. And on Good Friday, when they destroyed it, on the cross, you know what happened? The 15-foot-tall curtain with the cherubim angel split in two from top to bottom as he died. Pretty clear to see the symbolism there, isn't it? The thing that was blocked, the thing that was guarded, the thing that only one guy could cross one time a year and only with a sacrifice was now opened up, and all the world, anyone who would believe in Jesus, was invited to come all the way in face-to-face with God. And just as he said, they destroyed it, and he raised it up in three days. The temple came out, his body came out, and Jesus then shared the Holy Spirit so that the Bible says, if you know Jesus, you know God face-to-face. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you become, we become, like a temple, like a tabernacle to the Lord. The people of God, the church, Christians, become walking, talking tabernacles where God dwells. We get to experience His presence now, and of course, we look forward to the day described in the very last page of the Bible, where the whole world is covered with God's special presence. 
as the glory, as the waters cover the sea. The whole world is covered with God's special presence, like the waters cover the sea. That's what Jesus Christ does for us. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is not only the sacrifice offered once for all, like the one offered at that altar. He's not only the one who gives the Spirit to wash us and cleanse us, but he's the priest's. And he's also the, the, the God who dwells on the Ark of the Covenant. He's the tabernacle itself. All of that is true of us. So if we come to Jesus, guess what we get? Not just this general, oh, God's pretty good. And, and sometimes I get goosebumps when I think about him. We get a real serious, I really know God and he really knows me. Everywhere I go, I walk with him. I have enough finally. I don't have to look forward in other things. I've found enough. And so now I can go out and share and give it away and love, love, love. That's what the Bible teaches us. So this morning, I wonder, as we close, I wonder, do you believe this is the greatest blessing God could give you? If the whole book of Exodus ends this way, talking about a tent, because God is wanting to dwell with you and and with me, do you believe that's really the greatest thing he could give you? I mean, we struggle with that, don't we? We pray so much, I pray so much, just about circumstances to change which is not a bad thing to pray for. But y'all, to pray for the glory of God to come down. To pray for God to have a tent right next to our tent where we could know him face to face, a companion king. That changes everything. That's the greatest blessing. That's why Paul, in all of his letters, that's what he prays for people. He doesn't say, you know, give him this, give him that, heal him from this, give him that. He just says, let him know more and more the face of God in Jesus Christ. Help him to know the depths of it. Help him to know the heights of it. Help him to walk around this new tabernacle that we have in Jesus and just marvel at how great God is that he would dwell among his people. Y'all, this is not just for holy roller religious fanatics who lock themselves in a room and only pray and read the Bible all day. This is for every single person who believes in Jesus. It sends us out into the world like walking, talking companions of the Lord. If if you don't believe me on that, I, I encourage you, if you've never seen the movie Amazing Grace, go watch it. It's a good movie. It's about a man named William Wilberforce. And just like the guy earlier who said, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence, William Wilberforce became a politician for that reason. He had ambition. He was trying to prove himself. But somewhere in his career, he found the truth of Jesus Christ. And he, he believed. He turned from his sins and he put his faith in Jesus. And it changed everything. And he wanted to quit being a politician. He wanted to just sit at home. He was a pretty wealthy guy, so he could probably do this. He wanted to sit at home and just pray all day. His pastor, John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, said, Never do that. That is a waste of time. Now that you actually have the presence of God, William, go out and share it. Go out and use it. And the second half of his career is when he, he basically changed the landscape of the British Empire forever by helping abolish slavery in, in Britain, by helping raise education standards and working standards. Do you see what I mean? That's not saying everybody in here goes and be a politician, right? That would not be good. What I'm saying is go and do what God has called you to do, knowing I've got enough in him. I've, I've even got enough to spare and so my whole life can be given away. Y'all, I want to tell you that the end of Exodus, this is, this is the main point. That's what it means to be rescued. It doesn't just mean God bailed me out. It means I have God with me every day. And now I'm going out to spread his, the wonder of his rescue and his grace with everybody around me. And not just what I say, but in what I do. Amen? Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you for your mercy today. 
God, that you would dwell among us is, is just a, a marvelous, unbelievable, really, truth when, when we start to see your holiness, God. And so, Lord, we just want to praise you for sending your son Jesus into this world who became flesh and tabernacled among us. He, he set up his tent right in the middle of this broken and fallen and sinful world. God, I pray for each person in here that each of us would see our need for your presence. That, Lord, each of us would see how we're, we're barred from that without Jesus. How, how, God, it's not just something we should assume, but, God, that each of us would find it granted to us. That we would walk in the fullness of joy that is found at your right hand. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus who saves us. Amen.